morning. We have we started our new series on Galatians, and uh, I introduced the the whole basically a whole overview. And you realize it's really there was so much to say. And I when I went back home and I was like, man, I should have said this. I should have said this. But we trust God that you know you had to hear what He had to tell you too. Amen. And so we're going to continue on our series, Pastor Chandler. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, I'm I'm really excited. Oh, thanks. I'm really, really, really excited for uh, this sermon series on Galatians because I really, really, really love Galatians. Um, and uh, Pastor Sid and I had talked about this a, a long time ago, around the time that I was reading Galatians, I think for a class. I read it all the way through um, in one sitting for the first time, to, to my shame, um, the first time all the way through. Front to, or front to back, and I was just blown away how much was in there, how much good um, information and good theology and good, just everything. Um, and so I'm really excited. But before we jump in today, uh, I need a volunteer. Raven, would you help me? Okay. All right. Everyone give it up. Yeah, uh, a, a force of volunteer. Sorry. Um, I just figured that for this it would be useful to have the English teacher reading. Okay, so this is a letter that I wrote to someone in here, and I would like you to perform it for me, which is just to read it. So here you go. Uh, I'm going to give you the mic, too. If that's, is that all right? Do you want me to wipe it down? Here we go. August 1st, 2020, to Julie. Hello. I hope that you are doing well this fine morning. I have had a fun time this weekend. The movie the other night was really good. I could almost smell the fish when Julia's character tipped those barrels. I've been wanting to ask how Brady is doing with online school and if Max is excited to go back to school soon. Anyways, tell Jiggs I said hello. With much love, Chandler. P.S. I'm really sorry about the smell in the bathroom, but I don't think it has ruined the weekend completely. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, wait, hey, Raven, stay up here real quick. Sorry. Okay. So... Um, are you a bit confused about some of the things in, in the letter? Did you understand? You watched a movie, and you had a guest over. Okay. Do you know who the guest is? Julie. Do you know who that is? No. Do you know what movie I watched? Someone, no, with fish. Do you know who Brady is? Tom Brady. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know who Max is? No. Um, do you know what the smell in the bathroom was? I can guess. you want to guess? Go ahead. <laughs> The bathroom time. Bathroom. I think she's saying poop. So thank you. That's great. That's great. That's great. So, yes, give it up for Raven. That was awkward. So hard to stand up here and, and read about bathroom smells. But here's, now this is a bit of a crude analogy, but here's, here's my point. Letters, as well as other kinds of literature, letters find their meaning in their own context. Letters find their meeting in their own context. Now, this weekend, my mother-in-law, Julie, is in town. That's who Julie is. Her son, my brother-in-laws, are Max and Brady, and I, I love them, and I want to know about their life. Um, Jiggs is a nickname for Jillian, and I said, hey, say hi to Jiggs, and she's sitting right by Jiggs right, right now. Um, so, a lot of that letter found its meaning in the context of this weekend. Now, the bathroom smell Listen, guys, I don't know why you all thought it was poop. Come on, Raven. In church, no less. We have a problem with our air conditioning, and there's like a, 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 like a sort of a, a sweet 
maple smell that like it, it smells like engine coolant when it, your radiator's busted. I don't know why that would come from our AC. I don't understand that. But all I know is it's not what Raven thought, but context keys us in to what that letter was all about and what that meant. And here's, here's my point. Galatians, while it is in the New Testament canon, while it's inspired by the Holy Spirit and all of that, and it's very spiritual and it has um, crucial theological concerns, or at least that's what I mean by spiritual, um, it's a letter. It's a letter. And like other letters, it's, it, it finds meaning in context. Context matters. So, as we look at the letter of Galatians, it would serve us well to think contextually. Okay? And so, Pastor Sid, um, he started this last week. He started talking about some of the situations in Galatians. He started talking about the overall argument of Galatians. But here's a few questions that I would encourage you to keep on your, mo- on your mind as we go through this sermon series. This is never something that will, um, you know, we talked about the first week, so now we're good and we can just read the letter and get all the good stuff. No, this is something that affects how we read each part and how we read carefully. So ask questions like, who is Paul writing to? Why is he writing? What is the situation? Uh, What is the overall argument beginning to end? What is the bathroom smell, right? So, Ask contextual questions. Um, and so here's the deal. We, we can't fully know, um, we can't completely know, with complete certainty, that is, all the answers to these, some of these questions, right? Because we're removed by thousands of years of history. Um, and so we can't know all of these things completely, or with, with complete certainty, that is. Um, but the text and history gives us some really important clues um, that, can, that can get us started for sure, and that can get us in the door, into, um, sort, in a real way, the mind of Paul so that we can see how transformative the letter of Galatians is and how, how transformative the letter of Galatians is meant to be. Um, but only when we get that context do we really, really grasp that. And so it's so important that we keep this in mind. So when you hear the word history, you don't glaze over. I know it's tempting, especially when I say it. Um, but it's great. It's going to be great. Okay, so the situation of Galatians. In chapter 2, we see that Paul had been called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles who are non-Jewish people, right? All people who are not Jewish. Um, He's been called to preach the gospel to them. We see that in Acts that um, corroborates this part of Paul's story in Galatians. And... um, It was agreed um, that the Gentiles did not need to be physically Jewish in order to be in the people of God. Okay, But the problem is, there are people that are teaching that Gentiles did not need to be physically Jewish in order to be... Sorry, they're they're teaching that they did need to be physically Jewish. Um, But what I mean by this is predominantly um, they needed to be circumcised... They needed to observe uh, the Sabbath and dietary laws. These are the three main things um, that I'm talking about and that is in this kind of conflict that we see in Acts and that we see in Galatians as well as other letters of Paul. Um, And so we see again in in chapter 2, they come to this agreement with James and 
um, Peter and the, the, the other pillars in Jerusalem, that, you know, they don't need that. Jesus is enough. But these good tidings, they don't last long um, because wouldn't you know, some people um, in Antioch stop sharing meals with Gentiles. They stop being God's people, being together, being diverse, sharing food, which is such an important and rich um, image, right? They stop doing that, and it says for fear of the circumcision group. And who is it but Peter? Come on, Peter. You're the rock, man. You're the rock, man. What are you doing? What are you doing? And he misses it. And then even, and Paul says, even Barnabas, even Barnabas, which, you know, if you read Acts, Barnabas is like the kind of guy that you want to party with. He's so nice. He's so encouraging. You just want to, like, I don't know. Is this, this is weird, but the, the, the thought I get is I want to snuggle Barnabas. He seems like a snuggly guy. He seems like we could be buds. I could wrap my arm around his shoulder and be like, Barnabas, you're an encourager. You're an awesome guy. You're, give me your bud. You know what I mean? Like, that's it. Barnabas is awesome. And even Barnabas is persuaded by this the circumcision group and, and pulls away from eating with, with Gentiles. And Paul tells us in chapter 2, as we will read on, um, that th- these, these opponents, this circumcision group, we can uh, um, infer, um, is still saying, hey, Gentiles, you're not in. You're not in. And Paul is like, no. No, they say, you, you, you have to have these Jewish identity markers. You have to keep the law. You have to keep the Torah. You have to be physically Jewish. And Paul is like, no, come on. But here, we have to understand something. Before we're too hard on these people, before we're like, oh, these, oh, these stinkers, you know, and we're getting all mad, we have to be fair. We have to understand that there is an intense pressure Get some more context. There is some intense pressure on those who believe this heresy, this other gospel that we'll we'll see in a second. You know that that these Gentiles need to be physically Jewish. There's intense pressure for them to believe this. The first thing is that there is um, strong theological pressure in history. Okay, let me explain what I mean. To be Jewish, to be a part of the people of God, to be in God's nation, chosen nation, was to keep the covenant, full stop, period. That, that is what it meant, right? To keep the law, to be circumcised, to observe Sabbath and dietary laws, this is identity for them, right? Matter of fact, the prophets consistently warn Israel and Judah about the consequences of breaking the covenant. I don't know if you remember, but a little while ago, I got to preach on one of my favorite um, minor prophets, Habakkuk. We talked about one of the consequences to um, Judah not keeping the covenant, not living rightly, being unjust, and all these these different things. And what do you know? Babylon came in and, you know, Wiped them out and, well, took a bunch of them away and all this stuff. And, and so this is, is ingrained in these people by this point. And so they're like, hey, we don't want to be taken away by Babylon again. Hey, we want Rome out of here. We want Rome out of here. So we got to keep the covenant. These were things, understand, that Jewish people died and killed for. Have you ever heard about the Mac- Maccabean Revolt? Um, and around 160-some B.C.E., right? Uh, they died and killed for this stuff, and it was serious. 
These were essential for Jewish identity. Now here comes this group. Here comes this Messiah, right? If you can imagine with me on this other end of things. Here comes this Messiah who says, now you don't, I fulfill Torah. I, I, I fulfill Sabbath. Uh, you know, the, the, the Gentiles are in. This is, God, this is God's promise for all people. And all of these things that were so central to who you are are not relevant for these, new, these people coming in. Or are not needed, rather. And yeah, they're like confounded, right? The second thing, the second really strong pr- pressure is a strong um, sociopolitical pressure. Okay, so Rome and the Jewish people had struck a sort of deal. And this is a very crude overview of what this this part of history. But there was an exemption for the Jewish people from state cultic worship, right? Because Jewish people, as much as these other things are part of their identity, monotheism is a a big part of their identity. Again, this was going all the way back to the prophets who were like, hey, you're worshiping idols, Babylon, Assyria, uh, you know, they're going to take you out. Monotheism had become a very, very, very intense and strong a part of the Jewish identity. And so Rome comes in, and they're smart. They're like, okay, you know what? You don't have to uh, pray to Rome um, or Rome's gods, but you got to pray for Rome to your God, right? And so they kind of strike up this agreement, and Rome's going to kind of keep them um, in, in check. By giving them a little bit, but they still had, you know, they still pay taxes, and they still—that's Rome. Rome is smart. Rome is smart. Okay, um, but we, here's this new group, right? These new, these Jewish Christians who are bringing in the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. These people—they don't look like Jewish people. They don't act like Jewish people. They—they're, you know, and all of a sudden. These non-Jewish people, they're not participating in the empirical cult either. They're not, they're not worshiping the gods. What in the world? They're not, they're not even Jewish. Why? What, what, what? And then, side note, and this is really interesting, at this time and place, for, well, for a lot of history, if something bad happens, if something goes wrong, who do you blame? Well, it's because the gods are angry, and you blame the people who aren't worshiping the gods. Because you're Jewish people. It's, it, un, unfortunately, this is a very unfortunate trend that we see throughout history. Blame the Jewish people. You know, we saw it, we saw it uh, in Nazi Germany. We see it over and over and again. It's really weird. But at this time, it was like, hey, the gods are mad. People aren't worshiping the gods. What the heck, you know? And so there's this intense pressure. These opponents of Paul are like, hey, these people aren't Jewish. We got to keep up appearances. We don't want to lose this exemption. We don't want to anger the Romans any, any more than we have to. And at the, again, the, you know, the social pressure is ramping up. There's uh, zealots and Sakari people who are stabbing Romans in the street in Jerusalem. And it, like things are about to boil over. And you know in AD 70, uh, the temple is destroyed and, and Jerusalem is sacked and it's all violent and terrible, right? That's what we're building up to. And they're like, come on, we've got to keep up appearances, right? We've got to keep things peaceful. We've got to keep our exemption. We don't want to be... Um, in trouble because these Gentiles are not being Jewish. So there, there are people in the Galatian churches who are preaching a gospel other than the one Paul had preached to them. And I will dare say that it's kind of understandable why they are. It's kind of, I mean, I, I can sympathize with their feelings. I can sympathize with them. 
they're wrong, but I can sympathize with them. But Paul's not having it. Paul's, a, <laughs> Paul's an extreme guy, okay? He's not having it. He's maybe, I don't know if he's sympathetic, doesn't seem like it, but he's definitely, uh, he's not really happy with this other gospel. And this is what he says in verse 1 um, and then and on. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus and, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, uh, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished. This is verse six. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion, and you are, try- and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody preaching to you a gospel is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. This is verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's just the first part. That's like Paul's greeting in the letter. That'd be like if I had said, Dear Julie, and said like a bunch of awesome stuff like that instead of Dear Julie. This is awesome, right? Like this is an awesome letter. Are you ready? Are you ready? You better get ready. I don't, I don't hear a lot of people getting ready. I don't know what that sounds like, but you, you got to get ready. So I want to discuss this passage in three parts. Okay? Number one, uh, Paul's greeting and the foreshadowing of his message. Number two, Paul's rebuke of a false gospel. And number three, Paul's defense and the source of his gospel. Okay, so Paul doesn't waste words in this greeting. This is number one, Paul's greeting and the foreshadowing of his message. He does not waste words. Um, He highlights several key themes um, that will continue throughout the letter. This is what he says. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man. It kind of sounds like the end of this passage, right? But, but moving on. Um, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me to the church in Galatia. Churches in Galatia, sorry. So right away, uh, we see Paul defending his apostleship. He's making a strong statement saying, hey, I'm not sent by humans. I'm sent by Jesus Christ and God. And again, keeping in mind context, what's going on? He has people opposing him. 
And so he's got to defend himself. He's got to say, no, no, no. I'm Paul here. Hello. I, I preach this gospel to you. I'm sent from Jesus. I had an, I had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, this message is from God. Uh, that, you know, this is defense. To the Galatians. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord, and, and, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, a defense of his apostleship, and by extension, his message, which is really important. Um, and then now, wrapped up in his greeting, Paul shows his hand, so to speak, Right? Wrapped up in his greeting, Paul shows where he's going. Paul shows what Galatians is going to be all about. Um, and it's this. There is this gracious event on which Paul's theology hinges that is the death and resurrection of Christ. Amen. Now, it's brief. It's kind of it's a throwaway statement. You see, um, raised from the dead, right? God our Father who raised from the dead. And then you see um, our sins uh, to rescue us from this present evil age. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. This is a gracious gift. This is a gracious gift given to rescue us from the present evil age. Everyone say present evil age. It sounds awesome. It sounds like something in Lord of the Rings. You know what I mean? I feel like Aragorn's going to be like, pull a sword out. It's the present evil age. I don't know. Like fight something. It's awesome. But what, is it, what does it mean? What does this mean, the present evil age? See, most Jewish people in Paul's day understood future hope in terms of a current age of sin and oppression. You think back to the oppression of you know, Romans, uh, to Greeks, to Persians, to Babylonians, to Assyrians, and all of this oppression, you know, even all the way back to Egyptians. This sin, this present evil age, it stinks. There's always some power that's killing everybody. Come on, right? But then there's this new age to come. This new age of restoration. A new age where God's promise all the way back in Genesis to Abraham will be fulfilled. And Paul clearly understands Jesus' death and resurrection as the moment in which Jesus was victorious. And God's new age of restoration began. That is clearly what Paul is saying here. And by the grace of God and the faithfulness of Christ, we who put our faith in Christ are heirs to this promise. We are God's new covenant people. This settles us in to what I've heard some call the now, not yet. Everyone say now, not yet. Are we restored in Jesus? Yes. Are we adopted? Yes. Are we in a new age? Yes. Is there still sin? Yes. Is there still pandemic? Yes. Is there still quarreling? Yes. Is there still violence? Is there still death, cancer, sickness? All of these things that just break us down and we ask, God, how could this be? How could we be in this new age when it's still so broken? When there's just backbiting and quarreling among politicians and there's just 
poverty that you can't believe and kids starving in other countries and in our own country and trafficking. And I could go on and on and on, and it gets very grim very fast. We are in the now, not yet. We are called to participate with Christ in both his, his death and resurrection. As Paul says in Romans, we are called to walk in the newness of life. While knowing that Jesus will one day finish the work of restoration that he began. That is our hope. We are not hoping, we are not waiting to die and leave this world behind, this crappy world. We are waiting for ultimate restoration. Amen. That is, and that's a, that's, can I say, that's a, a great hope. I'm excited for that. Yeah. I mean, we know that God holds closely those who, who, have, are, who have gone before us. And we know that he, he cares for them in such a great way. But we also know that someday there's a better hope restoration, new creation, all the things that God had promised, it's going to be completed by Jesus. And we're called to participate in what he's doing now. This isn't about waiting around. This isn't about sitting on our hands, going to church, feeling good, saying, heaven come to me someday, or, you know, I want to go to heaven someday. It's about doing what Jesus is doing now. Amen. This is his gracious gift. This um, one, one commentator calls it a Christ event. I love that. The, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus and all that it means. And it's so important to Paul. All you have to do is read 1 Corinthians 15. Um, is, it, is that right? 15? Yeah, yeah. I want to make sure. But here's the deal. What's interesting about this next part is that most of Paul's letters have a thanksgiving portion. Most of them. But Paul is eager and to the point, right? He's eager, and, and he wants to get to the point. Uh, last week, Pastor said, he didn't say, you didn't say Paul's angry. I can't remember the word you use. But basically, you know, he's a little agitated, right? And he's getting to the point real quick. He skips the Thanksgiving part. Um, and we're about to read, the, uh, picking up in, in verse 6. I need to get a water, though. Drink a water. I always like to hold the mic real close so you can hear me swallowing the water. Just kidding. So... Verse 6, this is what it says. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Man. Which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now back to context. There are people perverting the gospel, and the Galatians are falling for it. And Paul's not happy about it, right? See, for Paul's opponents to say that the Galatians, that the Gentiles, are not truly God's people without the works of the law and without Jewish identity markers, is to say that Jesus did not rescue us from the present, present evil age. To say that they need these other things is to say that Jesus didn't have victory over sin and death 
And he didn't inaugurate the new age of restoration. It's to say that the cross was for nothing. This Christ moment that is so central to Paul, he starts off his letter like this, and he'll say later in Galatians that they're basically saying the Christ was for nothing. Or that the cross was for nothing. You can kind of see why Paul's getting a little angry, right? You can kind of see why, why it feels like when you read this letter, Paul is screaming. Of all of the books of the Bible, I, I can hear tone in this one the most. You know, people say you can't read tone in text. And it's pretty true. If you try to do it when you're texting someone, you'll get mad really fast. You know, you'll think they're mad at you, but they're just texting you. Like, you can't read tone in text, or you shouldn't try, really. But in this one, it's almost like you can. You know what I mean? It's awesome. Um, But Paul says, you know, even if we or an angel preaches some of the gospel, uh, don't listen. Let them be under God's curse. Now, that is a big deal. This is like super awesome hyperbole. Paul is saying something very, very clear um, because obviously he would never preach a gospel other than the one he preached, and obviously an angel from heaven would never do that, but he's saying, this is the gospel, full stop. Don't listen to anything else. And it's clear that we need to be cautious of possible perversions of the gospel. Now, listen, in Paul's context, again, back to context, you'll get tired of hearing me say that. I'm sorry. Um, the concern was building um, ethnic barriers and adding to the criteria of what it meant to be God's people, right? This is the, the main concern. I'm, I'm summarizing, of course, but they're building ethnic barriers, um, and they're, they're adding to the criteria of God's people. But right now, in this day and age, I don't know too many people walking around pushing Gentiles or, you know, uncircumcised people to get circumcised never happened to me uh, but I don't know maybe it's happening somewhere so our context is is a little bit different obviously we're not living under Roman rule obviously we're not living in a place where pagan ritual and worship um, cult worship is like a normal part of everyday life Um, we're not feeling the same social pressures that they are but there are still some very relevant things here very very relevant um and, and again, it's clear we need to be cautious of the perversion of the gospel. So there are what I would call identity markers that might be a sort of new circumcision, um, so to speak. If I can use that language, if I could draw a comparison, um, that's what I want to do. And listen, let me warn you, um, I, 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 catch, I, I think I preface things too much. I don't know. That's just me. I'm not going to stop prefacing things. It, I just, I have to. It's how I think. It's how I talk. I want to preface, okay? So I'm going to say some hard things, but I love you. I love you. And, and, I, and I'm not, also, I'm not trying to be disingenuous. I, I'm trying to, to say that there are things we need to take a hard look at. And it's not you, it's us. I'm in here with you. And the thought of my participation as a youth pastor or just as a Christian in general, the thought of my participation in a perverted gospel keeps me up at night, and it should you too. So one concern, a possible perversion of the gospel, I think, is a certain way of thinking about theological beliefs that separates and excludes. 
Listen, we should be very wary of any version of the gospel that emphasizes an us-against-them rhetoric. I'm going to let that sit for a little bit. An us-against-them rhetoric. A gospel that separates us from the world in a non-biblical way, or, or maybe even a gospel that separates us from other believers, from other Christians. That is dangerous. A gospel that builds barriers instead of tearing them down is dangerous. In the last, in, the, in very recent history, the Assemblies of God, our fellowship, participated in building barriers, racial barriers. We still see the effects. You know, who's heard of the Church of God in Christ? And I don't want to I don't want to be, I don't want to get into like a debate or anything, but I'm trying to say that we have participated in a false gospel. We have built barriers. It's dangerous. For us in here, and again, I'm speaking to us because I want this to hit home. It it might land pretty close to home. You know, I've, I've grown up in the Pentecostal tradition, and like other traditions... Um, I've seen a sort of spiritual elitism, an elitism that says we have the true gospel because the Holy Spirit speaks to us. We have the true gospel because someone says, thus saith the Lord in the back of the church once every Sunday or whatever. You You know what I mean? We have the gospel because we have genuine emotional worship services. And that one is more for evangelical Christianity in America as a whole. And listen, I'm not picking on you. I'm, not, I, I'm right there with you. I just want us to be aware of the dangers in our own context. Listen, if you think I'm harsh on my fellow Pentecostals, you should hear what I would say to the Southern Baptists. <laughs> I'd be really mean to, I'm just kidding. See, here I go, building barriers. Oh, man, what am I doing? It's a false gospel. I'm totally kidding. But I, genuine, I am genuine in saying that if I were preaching in another church, I'd probably be saying different things because the the true gospel, it challenges, it convicts, it breaks down barriers no matter where you're at, no matter what context you're in. That is the truth. If you're on the other side of the world and you're building barriers that are completely different than um, American social constructs, the gospel is going to tear those down too. You know, another identity marker that is particularly relevant, and this is a hard one too. Don't hate me. I love you. Love me back, please. But it's, it's um, poli- uh, you know, a political ideology. Look, look we're not going to lie. This political climate is harsh, right? Things are more po- polarized than they've ever been. Of course, that, people have been saying that for 100 years or whatever. I don't know, forever. But it, you feel it. You feel it on, on the day-to-day. You see it on social media. Heavy, right? But we, we, listen, and hear my heart on this. We can't confuse conservatism with Christianity. We can't say capitalism equals Christianity. That's just not true. Uh, listen, we are Christians. We are followers of Jesus first. We are sojourners in a foreign land. We are resident aliens. The Bible is clear. 
We're different. We, are, we belong to a different kingdom. I heard one commentator, one of my favorites, he said, can you imagine, and I'm paraphrasing, can you imagine if Jesus followers, if Messiah people said, if they really took the, the, the claim seriously, the Christian claim, that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not? Can you imagine if Christians really took seriously the claim that Jesus is Lord and America is not? Ah, it's uncomfortable. Look, I get it. Like, I'm, I'm a patriot. I, I would like to think that I am. I don't know. I want to be, at least. I, I love my country. We should. But we have to understand we're, we're in a different kingdom. We have a different Lord. And that has to be visible in our life. But I understand, and I, I, hear me, we can and we should, we can and we should let our Christ-like lives spill into our politics. We, we, the, the separation of, of religion and pol- politics is a false ideology. Our, 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 our belief in Christ affects everything who we, that we are, including our politics. And it gets messy. It gets messy. As you can see in the world today, it gets messy, but, but that's the way it is. Now, we must remember that these things, while not all bad, right? Conservatism is not bad. I'm not harping on conservatives. I would say the same thing if, if most of the people in this room were, were left-leaning. Or, but, but for liberals is what I mean, right? These things are not bad in and of themselves, but these are not the crux of the gospel. We can't make the gospel something that it isn't. And most of all, these things are definitely not excuses for exclusivity, which they often become. Again, this is the comparison we were making from the beginning. Are the, what are the Christian identity markers like that are comparable to circumcision and Sabbath, uh, Sabbath uh, and dietary laws and these kinds of things, right? What are these comparisons? That's where we're getting this from. They're not excuses for exclusivity. So another, another possible perversion of the gospel, although it's a little bit more different than Paul's situation, is um, when key elements of the gospel are taken out of it or forgotten or ignored. Now, there's a popular uh, church teaching on grace that goes beyond the scope of the Bible, a teaching that says, it doesn't matter what I do, grace covers all, full stop. And hear me. I think that the full stop is the most dangerous part. Because when, when, that's, when you say full stop, where's the Sermon on the Mount? Where's all the other moral teachings of Jesus? Where's Jesus saying to his disciples, hey, if you want to be forgiven, forgive? Where's Paul saying, should I continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Where's James saying, faith without works is dead? We have to have a a complete biblical picture. And we are very guilty, particularly in our context, at picking and choosing the verses that we like, proof texting, and moving on. We have to let the Bible shape our full image of the gospel. We have to be willing to understand the gospel on a basic level, level, but then go deeper. Because here's the deal. I've been reading about this a lot and trying to understand, you know, what is the gospel? And the truth is, any simplification 
is going, at its full um, you know, extent, is going to lead you into some trouble, right? If you say, oh, the gospel is justification by faith, full stop, you're going to get in trouble. If you say, the gospel is participation in the kingdom, full stop, you're going to get in trouble. You have to have all of these analogies. You have to have all of these images, right? All of these, these diverse ways of, of talking about the gospel, and you got to put them together. And it's a process. It's just a process. There's no, uh, if things were simple, I don't know, we wouldn't have the God that we have. He, does, <laughs> he doesn't work in simple ways, right? The, the Bible is proof of that. He used Paul. He used Paul to write this stuff. Paul was a murderer. He used Peter. Paul and Peter just butt heads in Galatians. We just read about or we just talked about it in Galatians chapter 2. He used Peter. This is messy. This is messy. That doesn't mean God isn't, uh, you know, God, right? But things are messy. You know, I, this is kind of a, off the top of my head an anecdote. But one of my Bible professors, smart guy, I love him. He's awesome. But he said, you know, if we only had one of the can- canonical gospels, each one, um, taken to its full, you know, logical extreme or extent, would uh, lead to heresy. And you can see this in, ch- in church history. Um, there, at, around the time of canonization, and I, again, I don't know this history well at all, but there were different people who picked different gospels, and they said, this is the one I think is, is the true gospel. Um, and then they took that, and, and they ran with it, and they got into trouble. We have four for a reason, and I believe that, and it's awesome. And when you see, when you see Luke's emphasis on wealth as like, the pure evil, as Americans, we should be like, oh my, I'm, I'm uncomfortable, <laughs> right? And when you, see, when, you, when, when you see John emphasize belief and faith and an advocate and all these different things, and, and you, you know, you, you get this full picture that it's just awesome, right? And that's just an analogy for what we're talking about. We need a full picture. But this, this popular church teaching that grace um, is beyond, you know, is, is all you need and, and that, you know, the full stop thing. It's a, it's a teaching that says it doesn't matter what I do. And it's dangerous. Paul's version of the gospel, again, is, is so, more, so much more full so that he can say in chapter 6 of the Galatians, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. New creation is everything. Whoa. New creation is everything. And new creation entails transformation. Transformation. We mustn't cheapen grace, just like we can't add to it. So those um, are a few concerns, and there are more. And listen, um, ultimately, um, no matter how hard it is, and it's painful, it's hard, we have to evaluate the gospel that we are presenting in the church. We have to this can't be, again, this can't be an us against them thing where we're like, okay, I got the full gospel. Now everyone else, get on board, right? This can't be that. It has to be a self-reflection. It has to be, how, am I, how is it my church, how are we participating in a perverted gospel? Evaluating the, the kind of gospel, the, the, the picture of the gospel that we are presenting to our kids. You know, I, I, I um, recently saw a study that, In 2017, 66% of teenagers left the church when they graduated high school. 66%. I think it was in 2007, it was 70%. Didn't change at all. Even though churches have gotten a whole lot cooler, right? They got a lot more smoke machines. They got a lot more 
you know, whatever. You got better programs. You got more, you know, you got your music. You got your young adults groups. You got all this stuff. And I'm not saying they're bad, but I'm just saying, what is going wrong? If cool lights aren't getting people in here, then what will? You know what I'm saying? Like, what's going wrong? Why are these kids leaving? As a youth pastor, this is concerning. This is concerning. And I think our normal reaction is to go, ah, those young kids, right? <laughs> and we're like, oh, the next generation. And they just play video games. And they're just on their phone. And, we, you know, we start dogging on them or whatever. And, you know, I get, I'm a little bit younger, so, I, you know, maybe I'm, I'm, my perspective's a bit skewed. But I think we, as older generations, as I have a, more and more younger generations below me, we need to recognize our hand in shaping this next generation's future. We need to recognize that maybe the gospel that we've presented to our kids is not sufficient. That's scary. That's scary. I mean, this, this, one, this last concern I just talked about alone, you could see it in, in the rationale of these kids leaving church. If grace is all you need, full stop, God covers everything, why would I go to church? What would be the reason? Why would I read James, faith without works is dead, and think that that's anything? Why would I just not like shrug that off and move on to the next you know, like, passage that I like? Again, proof texting. It doesn't hold that full gospel in view, and it doesn't give us a reason for participating in the kingdom of God. It's missing, it's missing our rescue from the present evil age, what Paul said in the beginning, Right? It's missing Jesus' victory over sin, his victory over death, his inauguration of new creation. Because, again, new creation entails transformation, entails going to church because you're a part of a new covenant community. It it entails um, loving people who are different than you. It entails not being harmful or hurtful. We talked about wisdom. We talked about uh, wisdom. And, and being a reactionary and all these things. We, we got we to gotta take a close look at the gospel that we are presenting to our kids. And I, I feel that as heavy as anyone in here. And it's kind of an open-ended challenge, right? Because, you know, number one, it's so complex there. It couldn't possibly go through each of the issues. Number two, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know in what ways our gospel is deficient all the time. But we need to be looking at it. But Paul continues. (laughs) Crickets. (laughs) It's hard. I I feel uncomfortable saying it. Like, it's it's hard. But that's kind of what makes sense about this next part. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And and note, servant, the word servant is, is the same word for slave. It's a lowly position. I would not be a slave of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation 
from Jesus Christ. Amen. Sandra, would you would you come up here and play for me? It'd be great. Is Paul a slave or a people pleaser? He's pretty clear. He's a slave. He's a slave to Christ. It seems likely that Paul was accused of being a people pleaser. Maybe uh, his opponents were saying, he just wants to make it easy on the Gentiles. He just wants to get numbers, right? Like we say about the mega churches with their cool lights or whatever. He just wants to get numbers or something, possibly. But here's the deal. In light of the social and theological pressure on Jewish and Gentile Christians who emphasize the identity uh, markers, in light of that, we talked about at the beginning, the theological history as well as the social, political um, pressures, I don't think Paul is a people pleaser. He's a slave. This gospel is not easy. The message of Paul is not one that makes people feel all hunky-dory all the time. That's a hard truth, but it's true. It's still a gospel of freedom. It's still a gospel of restoration. It's still a gospel of love and grace. But sometimes it's hard because it calls us out of our brokenness. Restoration calls us out of our broken humanity. It calls us out of our selfish desires, our hurting of others, our prejudice, our social structures. It calls us out of those things and it kind of destroys it. I was thinking as I was writing this about Jesus in Luke chapter 10 talking to the Pharisee, the, the, the lawyer, the expert in the law. And he says, who's my neighbor wanting to justify himself? And Jesus says, wrong question, <laughs> right? Jesus doesn't even answer the question. He destroys it. He says, you're trying to justify yourself because you think, well, he doesn't say this. I'm paraphrasing. You think, you're, you think I'm going to say, you know, giving to the poor because you have a structure for that as a Pharisee. You, you love your neighbor by giving to the poor. But instead he says, hey, that Samaritan, the person you hate, they were neighborly. Ask him. It'd be like God coming to, it'd be like Jesus saying to us, we were like, who's our neighbor? You know, we're thinking, yeah, I go, I go to the soup kitchen or I, uh, pay my tithe, I worship emotionally in church, I do the stuff or whatever, be like Jesus saying to us, hey, you know that person who makes you so uncomfortable, who you hate, who you would never, you never go in their house, you never eat a meal with them, ask them, (laughs) and we're like, whoa, it exposes our unrighteousness as we're trying to prove our own, that's the, that's the gospel, It's hard, but it's so good. Because when you see those things, when you see your hang-ups, when you see the structures, the barriers you're trying to build, the identity markers you're trying to make a part of the gospel, when you see these different things and you get rid of them, you're brought in to this community of love, of grace, of encouragement. You're brought in to the people of God. This is why Paul is a slave. He understands. He understands what the true gospel is. He understands who it's built on. 
Jesus rescued us from the present evil age. He began a new age. He began restoration. In Christ, we are all children of God. He redeemed those under the law so that they might receive adoption as his children. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are Abraham's offspring, heirs to the promise. That's all Galatians. That's Galatians. That's what Paul is saying. This is the gospel that thrusts Paul into service, into being a slave of Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law and God's promise. And it is is in Jesus that the gospel is rooted, and Paul screams to the Galatians, remember the true gospel. By God's good gift, by God's grace, Jesus died. He rose again. He was victorious over sin and death and every evil power at work, whether political or whatever. He rescued us out of this evil age and he brought us into the freedom and life of new creation. Now, will you live that? Will you live as if you are a new creation person? Lord Jesus, help us, God. Help us to take a hard look at the gospel that we are presenting. God, help us to remember your greeting and the gospel that you present in Galatians. Help us to remember to evaluate the different perversions, the possible perversions of the gospel that we are presenting to our kids and to the world. God, help us to see the source of your message, Jesus, and the salvation and new creation that comes in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, Father, Lord, we thank you once again, God. Forgive us for the times we've overcomplicated the gospel and forgive us for the times we've just simplified it way too much. Give us a new knowledge, but I say new understanding of what it really means, God, to live the gospel of Christ, to believe the gospel of Christ, Lord, and help us, Lord, to be able to proclaim that to everybody we come in contact with. Lord, we pray a blessing once again upon Lord this church I pray a blessing on the word of God and I pray you challenge us through this book of Galatians God again church I challenge you to read through the book like I said one chapter a day you got it six days in the week you can take Sunday a break because you're going to hear us speak about it so challenge you to do that and allow God's spirit to bring his word alive in our hearts we thank you and we commit ourselves to that once again in Jesus name amen